I'll invite you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 16. John 16, while you're turning there, you can find it on the Pew Bible, page 903. Uh, let me just issue my great thanks uh, to you and to the Lord for the opportunity to preach this morning here at Grace. Um, I bring you greetings from Westminster uh, Presbyterian Church and uh, the brothers and sisters there. Before we read our text and stand together, uh, let me just give you a, a little bit of context as we dive into this passage at the very end of John 16. Uh, th these are the final words of Jesus' upper room discourse. Uh, on the night when he was betrayed, he spent these precious hours with his disciples, telling them about his departure through the cross into heaven, about how he was going to prepare a place for them in heaven, how, how the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them. And back in verse 16 of this chapter, he has said to his remaining 11, uh, this uh, kind of cryptic word, he has said, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. Well, with this in mind, let's stand together. And, uh, and before we read, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we pray uh, that by the power of the Holy Spirit sent from Christ in heaven, you would bless the reading and the preaching of this, your word. Uh, we thank you for the glory of Christ as it shines in the heavenly places and how with such tenderness and care he spoke to his disciples even on the eve of his crucifixion. Lord, we pray uh, that as he spoke these words, not only to them, but also through the ages to us, that we would receive these words with meekness and love, that we would lay them up in our hearts, that we would indeed even practice them in our lives for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beginning at verse 25, hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word written for you and for me this morning. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it is now the year 2023, and for those of us who grew up in the 1900s, and isn't that a flattering way to put it, it's amazing uh, that we're living in the year 2023, and yet that's, that's not quite right, is it? It's, it's actually the year 2023 A.D., Anno Domini. 
which is Latin for in the year of the Lord. Now, we often hear the phrase in the year of our Lord because when this dating method was conceived, incidentally by a Christian monk back in the 6th century, the original phrase was in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anno Domini Nostri Jesu Christi. I can remember growing up uh, being amazed to learn as a boy that no matter where you lived or, or what even your religious background and beliefs may be, virtually the entire world dated the history of the human race uh, with, the, with the letters B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini. You may know that this scheme is just a little bit off. Uh, scholars tell us that Jesus was probably born around 4 B.C., but close enough. Close enough. This is the, the Western dating system. This is now the international standard for dating years and centuries and millennia. Legal scholars cite it. Scientists depend upon it. International business, government, schools, budgeting, planning, record keeping, everything. All the way down to the calendar on our phones. Keeping track of birthdays and anniversaries and dentist appointments. All of it depends on this dating system, the year of our Lord. Even the way our Bibles are arranged, are structured along the B.C.A.D. system. Uh, the Old Testament, the 39 books, refer to the time of human history before the coming of Christ. And the New Testament relates the time A.D., after uh, the birth and the, through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's extraordinary. And it's extraordinarily fitting isn't it? Because if it's true, brothers and sisters, it is true. Eternal and infinite divine Son of God took on flesh and entered into human history, then His coming is the great bisection of human history. It is the most significant thing that has ever transpired. Everything that happened before the coming of Christ was leading up to it, Everything that has happened since has happened in light of it. And yet, I would submit to you this morning that if we were to ask Jesus what is the proper dividing line in all of human history, he would have slightly different dating systems. Not that Jesus was confused about the significance of his birth. He most certainly was not. But I believe that if you were asked Jesus, what is the great bisection of human history, he would say it is not his birth, but his resurrection. It is the resurrection of Jesus that marks the centerpiece of human history because everything after the resurrection is different. Everything is transformed. So it's probably better to say we are living not in the year 2023 A.D., but but in the year 2023, Anno Resurrectionis Domini, in the year of the resurrection of our Lord. As I mentioned uh, before we read the text, we are here at the end of the upper room discourse uh, where Jesus has been meeting and teaching his disciples. He's pointing them ahead again and again throughout this discourse to the time after the resurrection. In fact, just to drive that home, back in verse 22, he has said, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. Uh, a reference to the resurrection appearances, when they, indeed they rejoiced 
and they saw him. And, and even in our text this morning, in verse 28, uh, Jesus says, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And in these verses, Jesus identifies four things, uh, four ways that his resurrection changes everything. And changes everything not only for his disciples, but I hope we're going to see this morning, changes everything for you and for me today in the year 2023. What does Jesus say about this time in the year of the resurrection of our Lord? Well, the first thing Jesus says is that in the time after his resurrection uh, will come a time of unprecedented clarity. Unprecedented clarity. Look at what he says in verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus says, I've been speaking in figures of speech. Not just a reference to his parables, uh, but a reference to his, his teaching ministry as a whole, where, yes, it's true, he's sometimes used puzzling symbols and phrases. In John's Gospel alone, Jesus has described himself as the source of living water, as the bread of life. He told Nicodemus back in chapter 3 of the need to be born again. He has said that he will rebuild the temple in three days, the temple of his body. He said in John 10 that he will lay down his life for the sheep. To the disciples, all of these things were somewhat cryptic statements. They were enigmas that they couldn't quite figure out. In fact, back in chapter 10, when Jesus spoke to them about being the good shepherd who leads out his sheep, who knows them by name, in verse 6, we read these words, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. This figure of speech is the same word that's used in verse 26, 25 of our text. Now, Jesus would explain things, of course. He would answer his disciples' questions. He would talk to them about the meaning of his parables. Sometimes Jesus would, would rebuke them for not understanding, especially against the background of the Old Testament. But at the same time, Jesus knew that fuller light was coming. That fuller light would shine upon them on the far side of his resurrection. It would shine upon them, especially through the giving of the Holy Spirit sent from Christ uh, from heaven. The significance and the meaning of his saving mission as their Messiah would dawn upon them with unprecedented clarity. As they look back upon the cross and saw it not as a tragedy, not as Christ's defeat, but as his moment of triumph. And they would see the resurrection as, as what it was, Christ becoming the, the Savior and Redeemer for the whole world. Jesus said all of this was coming. Back in chapter 16, he has said, Still, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And this is what happened. You remember at the beginning of Acts, we, we read about Jesus teaching his disciples for 40 days about the kingdom of God. And then by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they, they grasp and then would write down in the pages of the New Testament what, what Christ had done with all of its wonderful manifold implications. Well, there is a number of applications of this for you and for me today. And I think the first is this. 
Uh, this slow increase of light, uh, particularly the great transition from before the death and resurrection of Christ to the unprecedented clarity afterward for the disciples. Well, this is what God has been doing in human history from the very beginning, isn't it? God has been unfolding a single, organically expanding plan of salvation centered on Christ. When John was reading uh, from Genesis 4, he referenced that first seed promise of the gospel in Genesis 3, and the curse of the serpent, the champion seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the enemy of our souls. And then as we read through the pages of the Old Testament, this light begins to grow through the promises, through the covenants of God, until at last it ripens into the noonday sun, into a full flower through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that we who live on, on this side in, in 2023, we can read our Bibles and we can say, yes, Lord, I now see what you were doing all along. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 3, the mystery of Christ was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now notice Paul is not saying that the gospel was not revealed in the Old Testament. It was revealed in the form of promise and types and shadows, but Paul recognizes that the dawning of the, of the full flower of God's redemptive plan was happening in his own life with the resurrection of Jesus. And I think the second application for us today is this. The Christian faith is a revealed faith. The Christian faith is a revealed faith. It's, it's not a hidden faith. They're not hidden sayings. When you come to Grace PCA, there's not a hidden handshake that you get to learn. No, the Christian faith is an open, revealed faith. God says in Isaiah 45, I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. So people ask, where, where, where can I find God today? Well, we, we find the revelation of the glory of God in the things that he has made, of course. But we find the revelation of God particularly in the pages of Scripture. This is where we learn the gospel. This is where the risen Christ reveals the will of the Father that everyone must repent and believe on him as the only Savior of sinners. Again, Paul said this at Athens, didn't he? The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, brothers and sisters, if there are any here this morning who are looking for God, who are wondering where he is. You need to know this morning that he is not hiding. He is not running. And maybe the best thing that you can do this morning is, is again, humble yourself under the written word of God and say to the risen Christ, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And if you do that, believe that you will discover a second thing that is true in this year of the resurrection of our Lord, something that Jesus says. You will find that in this day, it is a day of unhindered access to the Father. Unhindered access to the Father. Look, look at what Jesus says in verse 26. 
in that day, again, what day? We're talking about in context the day from the time point of his resurrection onward. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, when Jesus says in verse 26, I will not ask the Father on your behalf, it's likely that Jesus is hinting at the way that Old Testament Jews had to approach God. You remember that in the Old Testament, the average Jew could not access the central meeting place between God and man in in the Holy of Holies in the temple. In fact, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies and and, and just once a year. And, and when he did, he had to bring the blood of sacrifice, and he had to pass beyond that very thick curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. But you remember what happened at the death of Christ outside the city gates as the darkness of the wrath of God descended upon him, and he made atonement for sin not his own. That that curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And among the many meanings of that torn curtain was the fact that the way of access to the presence of the Father was opened through the death and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Heaven itself, as it were, is opened up to all who would call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we don't need an Old Testament priest anymore. We don't even need a Roman Catholic priest to intercede for us. This, this is what the Protestant Reformation uh, called the priesthood of all believers, that all believers have access to the Father in light of the full revelation of the gospel and in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And listen to this. Jesus says, and do not say, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, Jesus is not saying that the Father loves you only after you believe on Christ. No, this this means that if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father welcomes you. He welcomes you with open arms. And, And Jesus is saying, when I ascend to the Father, I won't need to persuade him to be loving toward you. Because the love of the Father was, was in fact, the the motivation. It, It stands behind my own coming for you as your Savior. It is because the Father so loved this world that he gave his Son that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. And this same Father delights to hear the prayers of his children. Some of you may know the name Charles Hodge. He was a seminary professor at Princeton Theological Seminary many, many years ago in the 1800s. Charles Hodge had a a massive intellect. He lived in a house on campus, and and his house had two entrances into his study. One of the entrances was to the outside of the house that students could come in uh, to see their professor. And the other door was to the interior of the home where his family would come and see. 
And Hodge realized that his young children had trouble with the latches on the door on the interior side. And so he, he very famously had the latches removed, the doorknobs removed, and he put springed hinges on the side of the door frame so that, so that his children could just push open the door and access their father. This is what Jesus has done, except, except Jesus has done more, hasn't he? Jesus effectively has removed the door from heaven itself. That barrier that our sin has erected between ourselves and God. All of it has been taken down. So the author to the Hebrews says we can have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he's opened for us. And because of this, the author says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We have unhindered access to the Father. And, and there is only one condition. So Jesus says in verse 26, we, we must come to the Father in his name. We must come in his name. We must come on the basis of his finished work. We must come believing that he is the only mediator between God and man. And when we pray to him, we pray in the name of Jesus. One commentator puts it this way negatively. He says, Christless prayer, that is prayer that presumes to ascend to the Father's presence outside of Christ's mediation. Christless prayer is godless prayer, no matter how pious it may sound. That, that's, that's true. But we can also flip that around and say the converse. We can say Christ-mediated prayer is prayer that the Father welcomes, no matter how stammering or stuttering it may sound. We pray to the Father who loves us, who hears us, who welcomes us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, we are going to need to pray in the name of Christ because of the third thing that Jesus says. In this Anno Resurrectionis Domini, the year of the resurrection of our Lord, not only is it a time of unprecedented clarity, gospel revelation, not only a time of unhindered access to the Father, but it is a time of spiritual opposition. Spiritual opposition. You say, where, where did this come from? Everything was going so well. Let's look at what Jesus says. Notice in verse 28, he gives this sweeping summary of his person and work. He says, I, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Let's just pause here for a moment and recognize what, what wonderful theology is contained in verse 28. Jesus, Jesus is talking about his deity. I came from the Father. His incarnation. I came into the world. His death and resurrection. Now I'm leaving the world and his ascension to heaven. And I'm going back to the Father. And with this, the disciples think that the day of unprecedented clarity has come. Uh, in verse 29, they, they offer a real confession of faith. They say, we believe that you came from God. But I want you to see that in light of the summary of his ministry in verse 28, the confession of faith of the disciples at the end of verse 30 is only partial. They say, we believe that you came from God but they don't yet recognize 
all of the implications of Christ's departure from the world and his return to God. They, they don't understand what it means for him to leave this world by way of the cross. They don't yet grasp what it means for Christ to depart from them as an atonement for sin. And this is why Jesus says in verse 31, do you now believe? Jesus effectively is saying, you, you think you believe well now, do you? Jesus knows that they're, they're kind of getting out over their skis. Uh, one commentator says the word now here is like a, it's like a raised eyebrow. Jesus is saying, not so fast. You, you don't believe the way that you think you do. Because my cross is going to show you what it really means to believe in me. One commentator, Arthur Pink, says, it's one thing to know the soldier's drill and wear the uniform. It's quite another to be steadfast in the day of battle. Jesus says in verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that that the very moment of Christ's triumph over sin and hell and Satan and darkness is the very moment when the full fury of hell and Satan and death was against him. And it was at this very moment that the temptation for the disciples to shrink back was very great. And we learn as we, as we continue reading in our Bibles that even after the resurrection of Christ and before his return, the hostility and opposition of the world and its rebellion against God, against Christ, against his cause, and the great temptation to shrink back from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and living for the glory of God, all of this continues until the return of Christ. Jesus made this very clear back in chapter 15. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He's saying you're, you're not alone, but know, as he goes on to say, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Christians feel this, and they, they look out at the world, they look in their own hearts, and they say, how can, how can Christ be on his throne? How can he have attained the triumph over sin and death, and yet I still feel spiritually depressed? How, how can Jesus have triumphed over sin and death and the church still struggle with so much weakness? How can Jesus be the risen King of Kings and I still commit the same sin that I've wrestled with for so many years? And Christians have, have even built entire theological systems to say, well, because of the trials of this life, it can't be true that Christ actually reigns yet. In fact, Christ's reign is, is coming in the future for a thousand years, some, some undefinable point ahead. Because if he really were reigning, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be struggling like this. And here's, here's the thing that, that such systems miss. And it's something that we need to get into our heart. The time of the triumph of Christ in this age is the time of the testing of the church. The 
time of the triumph of Christ in this age is the time of the testing of the church. God in his inscrutable wisdom has deemed it most fitting for the church of Jesus Christ that is joined to the risen Christ to follow in his footsteps, to suffer in this age in route to the glory that Christ enjoys at the right hand of the Father. And here's the beautiful thing about it. As we follow in the footsteps of Christ, we do so united to the triumphant Christ. We do so indwelled by the spirit of the risen Christ. So as we traverse the sufferings of this age, we experience something of the resurrection life of Jesus today in 2023 A.D., as well as the full enjoyment and full disclosure of the resurrection life of Jesus in body and soul on the day of his return. This is why James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Well, what's, what's going to make us steadfast in trial? In this age of unprecedented gospel clarity and unhindered access to the Father in the midst of spiritual opposition, Well, there's a fourth and final thing that Jesus says. He says, in the year of the resurrection of our Lord, it will be a time of assured victory. Assured victory. Verse 33. Whenever you need encouragement for fighting against sin, whenever you need encouragement for living for God and not for yourself, for loving His Word, for enduring heartache, for living with and for joy in the Holy Spirit, you need to come back to verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Notice that that in context, Jesus doesn't rebuke his disciples for their weak faith, back in verse 31, in order to shame them. He doesn't do it in order to wag his finger at them. He does it to remind them that where they fail, he will succeed. Where they fall, he will stand. He says in verse 32, even though all fall away, the Father is with them. And and after the cross, because he is the righteous one, He will be raised forever. And notice, even before all of this happens, before he goes to the cross, before he dies, he describes his victory in verse 33 in the past tense. I have overcome the world. He he says it because his victory is so certain, so sure. The fulfillment of God's plan of redemption is so certain. He is so obedient unto death that he he can say, I have overcome the world. This is fuel for the Christian life, is it not? This is fuel because those who are weak in faith still place that faith in a strong state. You know this? 
You place your weak faith in a strong Savior. And his victory over death becomes the guarantee of our victory over death. Because just as we follow in the footsteps of the Savior by passing through and enduring the opposition of this fallen world and our own fallen hearts, Jesus himself shares the victory of his resurrection with his people now and in the future. So that as Christ suffered in route to glory, so too does the church of Jesus Christ suffer in route to glory. So Jesus says we will face tribulation. This is an old word, sometimes translated trouble. It can refer to persecution from without. It can refer to struggles of sin within. It could be, it could be anything and everything that we endure as we live in this year of the resurrection of our Lord before his glorious return. What does Paul say in Acts 14, 22? It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And when we face this tribulation, Jesus says we can take heart. We can be of good courage. Our heart can be firm. We don't have to be despairing or depressed. Because we're joined to the risen Christ now and forever. So we sing these words. Soar we now where Christ has led. Following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Hallelujah. The gospel writer John got it. Gospel writer John wrote his epistles, the end of the New Testament. He writes these words in 1 John 4, 1 John 5, excuse me, verses 4 and 5. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now, on the surface, it doesn't make much sense, does it? You think, my, my faith does not overcome the world. My faith can barely overcome my alarm clock on Sunday morning. But we know what he's really saying, don't we? It's not, again, the strength of our faith, but the strength of the object of our faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Because that faith believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We'll close with this. One of my favorite theologians, Dutch theologian, named Herman Boving. When he was a young man, he was called upon during his theological studies to write a sermon. He was 24 years old, and he chose as his text 1 John 5, 4. This text. What is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith? I just want to read to you some selections of his sermon, and then we'll close. This is what Bob Inc. wrote. The title, by the way, of the sermon was called The World-Conquering Power of Faith. And it says this. Faith is the only weapon John gives us with which to fight against the schemes, temptations, and lies of the world. It is the only means at our disposal for overcoming destruction and death. 
history witnesses to the world-conquering power of faith. How? Because it maintains that Jesus is the Son of God who is now risen from the dead. There is no strength in us or in any creature in heaven and on the earth. But Jesus, the Son of Mary, the only begotten of the Father, he is the hero of Judah's line, who conquered the world through his cross. And through this, through its content and object, is faith precisely a world-conquering power. By faith, we enter into Christ's work. We rest on his victory. We receive his merits. Here is a fight in which the victory is assured. Christ is the guarantee of this. The nations have been given to him as his inheritance, and the ends of the earth as his possession. Later, he will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, but to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Come then, Lord Jesus. Yes, come quickly. Amen. Brothers and sisters, may you live in the gospel clarity and delight in the unhindered access to the Father in the face of spiritual opposition without and within because of the assured victory of your King and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in this year of the resurrection of our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he calls us to take heart, remembering not the strength of our own faith or the merits of our own works, but the victory that belongs to him as he has overcome all in his resurrection from the dead. Father, we pray that as we live united to him in the unbreakable bond of the Holy Spirit, that we would walk in newness of life, abounding in thanksgiving, fixing our eyes upward and forward to him who beckons us home. In Jesus' name, amen.